This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book and is number five of the series on the hope of resurrection. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture. And those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you read together with us the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, the first 22 verses. Leviticus 23, the first 22 verses. You notice that this goes very carefully, this Leviticus 23, through the festive year of Israel. First of all, there is the weekly Sabbath, and then there are those feasts which come in their due order. The first is the Passover, and the last series, which we haven't read in this reading, is in the seventh month when we have the blowing of trumpets and the great day of atonement, the feast of tabernacles and the end of the year. While Israel had 12 months in the year, and sometimes they had 13, because they were all of equal length, not like ours, their festive year lasted only seven months, and that's rather suggestive, again, lining up with the, the sevens that you get so much with regard to the prophetic forecast of the working out of the purpose of the ages. It begins with Passover, the shedding of blood, and it ends with the Day of Atonement, the shedding of blood. The two aspects of the sacrificial work of Christ, the one that led them out, which we call redemption, the one that led them in, which we term atonement. Uh, but the portion of this um, passage with which we are immediately interested is the emphasis upon the first fruits. Will you just notice, as you have done in your reading, it says in verse 11, And ye shall wave the sheaf, and this sheaf was made up of early ripened ears of barley, in this country, we don't expect to be gathering barley of any sort at Easter. But in Palestine, the barley harvest would begin to show colour. And one of the uh, attendants at the temple, I don't exactly know which one, would go through the barley harvest and pluck here and there an early ripened ear of corn, the barley. And that would be made into a sheaf. And that is taken on the, it says in the verse 11, on the morrow after the Sabbath. Well, the morrow after the Sabbath is the first day of the week. So that you see, long before the coming of Christ, Israel were going through every year a little ceremony, and the very morning that Christ was raised from the dead, the priest in the, tabard, in the temple was offering the sheaf of the first fruits, although perhaps poor men, he didn't believe it and he didn't know its significance. But there it is. Christ the first fruits. But if you remember, we read a little bit further down, that after 50 days, another first fruits comes into the story. It says in verse 15, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. And that brings us to what we call Ritzel. But this is Pentecost. And then we have a very strange statement. Ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenth deals. They shall be a fine flour, yes, but they shall be bacon with leaven. Now that's extraordinary. 
because no offering which is burnt by fire can ever contain leaven in the offerings of Israel. And yet here's one. It's not offered by fire, you notice. It's brought before the Lord and it's specified that it should be two loaves and that it should be bacon with leaven. Now why? Why, because the first fruits of Easter or Passover is Christ. And the first fruits of Whitsun or Pentecost is the Lord's people. And although the Lord's people are the first fruits because they belong to him, they are reminded that in themselves they are not unleavened as Christ was. And so the little distinction. Our first fruits is only humanly possible because he is the true first fruits. And all our acceptance is in him. There must be many other reasons that, that we may not be able to bring out on the surface at first, but that seems to be one of the obvious ones. And then you will notice, it says again, in verse 20, And the priests shall wave them with the bread of the firstfruits. The uh, sacrifices are there, the kid of the goats, the two lambs, they can be offered as peace offerings, uh, but the wave loaves are not offered as peace offerings. They are with it and accepted because of it. I've stopped on this re- uh, reading, Leviticus 23, because we shall come to it when we are dealing with the next section in 1 Corinthians 15, to which I think it's time we now turn. 1 Corinthians 15, taking up the story where we left it off last time in connection with the problem of the resurrection. The problem, I say, is stated by the Apostle, not that he had one in this sense, uh, but he's voicing some of their own uh, difficulties, and possibly voicing the difficulties of some of us. You will remember that the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, from verses 1 to verse 11, is occupied by the evidence and the witness that could be brought to bear upon the question of did Christ, was Christ raised from the dead? The the integrity of the Apostle's witness is called into question. The fact that the Scriptures speak about being raised the third day comes into it. And then we have a series, not merely of one man who may be a fanatic, but a whole series of men who not only bore their witness but died for it eventually. That the Christ that they knew, the Christ that they'd spoken to, the Christ that they'd seen, the one whose hands they'd examined was the very one that they had seen after his death and burial and saw him eventually ascend and go into heaven. And if this this can be questioned, if this is set aside, then we'll discover, as you know full well before we read the passage, that we have no hope, no hope whatever, and therefore we should give earnest heed to the testimony that this uh, chapter gives to this mighty subject. He ends up, you remember, in verse 11, Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, that involves their integrity, the truth of their witness, we preach, and so ye believed. And that says, in the first instance, you, who are now addressed as saints, you who were once sinners beyond description, you believed, and you have experienced a little of the power of his resurrection. Well, now he says. Now, we start the new subject. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you 
that there is no resurrection of the dead. You see, that is the beginning of this new quest. And if you glimpse at the chart, you will see there are two of them. Verses 13 to 33 is occupied in answering that question. The first question is rather the fact of the resurrection. How do you say this after this testimony has been given to you? Then when we come down the story to verse 35, it's not so much, is the resurrection a fact? But if it is a fact, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? And unless you are extraordinary people, I should imagine that sometimes these things are fitted through your minds. In fact, I shouldn't think very much of your minds if they hadn't. And here we've got the only possible way of getting some answer to these questions, for if they're not answered for us here, they can be answered by nobody. For nobody has come back to tell us, except the Christ himself who rose from the dead and gave these men the word through the inspiration of the, of the Spirit to record it for our learning. So now we've got these two uh, questions in front of us, and we've got the answers as far as God has seen fit to give them. The fact of the resurrection, how? And the manner of the resurrection, how? And in what body do they come? You will see that Adam dominates the answer in both cases. Now, first of all, notice this. Verse 12, once again. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, he doesn't say, how can then you say he didn't rise from the dead? He doesn't say that. It says, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how can you deny the resurrection of the dead? That is to say, he's already, as it were, possessed by the thought that the res resurrection of Christ was never for his own sake. Of course you say it couldn't be. He died for us. He had no need to die on his own account. He was raised again because of our justification. He was raised because of our salvation. Of course, raised that he might live again. But it is in the estimate of the apostle, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his people is all one and the same story. If one can be denied, so can the other. And you'll find he goes backwards and forwards over this. <clears throat> it has been put in the, in the sense that if the species be conceded, how can you deny the genus? Well, that's rather using logical terms. But if you say there are such animals as terriers and uh, hounds and uh, boxers and uh, spaniels, if you say that, well, you can't say at the same time that there are no such thing as dogs. Well, you say, these others that I've just named, hounds and spaniels and terriers, they're species. But every one of them belongs to the genus dog. So he says, if if you deny this one, you deny the other. Anyone who tampers with the resurrection of, of Christ is robbing himself and the fellow believer of the only ground of his hope. And so you'll find he's interwoven it so that at last we can hear, as it were, in the background of this witness, our Saviour's words, because I live, you shall live also. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Or, he died and revived that he might be the Lord of the dead and the living. All these things are linked together, you see, with this uh, approach to the subject. 
Then he goes on in verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? You see how, t- how bold he is. He doesn't say, well, if there's no resurrection of anybody else, we do know that Christ was raised from the dead. He says, we don't. Because he was only sent to be the Redeemer, which included his resurrection, if you were going to be rescued. But if you're not rescued, then the whole thing's washed out. And as he brings it, we're of all men most miserable. Because we believed it and trusted it, rejoiced in it, and now it's exploded. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And your faith is vain. You notice this word vain comes quite a number of times in this story. It's not always the same word, but the dominant word is the word kenos, which means empty. Empty. He says, we've been making Maria to do over this preaching. And if it turns out to be a failure and a fraud, what an empty thing it is. So it must be, mustn't it, ever? If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Because your faith cannot stand of itself. Never use the word faith and make a lucky charm of it and say, oh, we believe. But you can't do that. You can't just believe. You try. You can only believe somebody or something. You can believe a person. You can believe a promise. But you can't say, have faith. If you do, you're making it a lucky charm. And faith, well, it's a cipher. Faith depends upon the veracity of the promiser. And Christ is the seal of the promise. And if Christ be not raised from the dead, you can believe for what you like. But it's empty. It's got nothing in it. It's the risen Christ that fills the faith and makes it what it is. Yea, you see, this is serious. We have found false witnesses of God. He said, don't forget that I've got something to say in this, and so has Peter and James and John. You're lining us all up and saying we're either a lot of fools or fanatics or we're deceivers. We have maintained that the Christ we knew, the Christ we spoke to, the Christ who appeared in the upper room with the door shut, the Christ that convinced Thomas, we have maintained that he, that Christ, was raised from the dead. Handle me and see, it is I myself, said Christ. And they had the words still written on their hearts. And now he says, we maintain that witness. We've stood against all the pressure of Pharisee and Sadducee and Roman uh, philosopher and Roman rulers. For what? He said, that means to say that you're putting us down as cheats or frauds or fools. So there's that point. And you remember, he brought before you he was seen of Kephash, then of the twelve, then five hundred. So we've got this emphasis upon witness. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that God of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Back again, you see, twisting them together so that they cannot be separated. And if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. That's desperate, isn't it? You see, the Apostle is leading us to see this, that the cross of Christ has only a power 
if that crucified Christ would rise from the dead. The cross alone cannot save because there's no evidence of the acceptance of the offering made. But when that offering was made, he offered himself without spot to God. When that offering was made, and then the tomb was emptied, and that offered Son of God lived again and ascended and sat down to the right hand of the majesty on high, there we have God's attestation that his work was accepted. And unless that sacrifice was accepted, it would be valueless. So while we preach, while we must preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, and we've only got to turn to the first chapter of this very epistle to see how the apostle insisted upon that, we preach Christ crucified. But there are some who misunderstand him when he said in chapter 2, we determine to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. They seem to think that the only thing they've got to tell people is that Jesus Christ was crucified. But that's not what the apostle meant in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of man's wisdom, because I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, but I speak wisdom among those of a perfect, and I go on to tell you much more. And so the much more comes in 1 Corinthians, when you get to the 15th chapter, that the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ make two parts of one indivisible whole work. And here is the crown upon it. And if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Now look what he says. And they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Let's take these two expressions. Fallen asleep. Now we might say when we read in the book of Job that he was feeding out, he asked the question, if a man die, shall he rise again? And then you find him is beginning to explore the possibilities and he comes out with the consciousness that he says, um, Thou wilt call and I will answer thee. I will awake one day. And again later on I know that my Redeemer liveth. And the psalmist says, I shall awake in thy likeness. Then a person may say, yes, but that was only like men. They were feeding out for something and boosting themselves up a bit. But you see, our Saviour and his witnesses involved, he himself said, over and over again when we're looking at the evidence in the earlier studies, he told his disciples that he would be taken by wicked hands and he would be crucified and he would be buried and the third day he would rise again. So we are dependent not merely upon witnesses, however great that is. We're dependent upon this one witness who went through that awful experience and we are told Christ dies no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he liveth, he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So there we have the place that the resurrection occupies in this scheme of things. Sleep. We were looking at the word sleep. You remember, and I've got possible, probably, uh, now I'm getting tangled up again with it, you see, in the emphasis in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
I think there's a point that I would like to make now, quite independent of the distinctive words that are used in Thessalonians, if you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. He says in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. And you'll notice that that's a phrase the Apostle has used quite a number of times in his epistles. And if you look at the passages, they vary very much in their character, and you may wonder why they're prefaced by these words. But in this particular passage, you are approaching something which you see is vital. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. He doesn't say we're not to sorrow. That would be wrong, that would be inhuman, and even Christ himself, in that marvellous chapter of John's Gospel, where he stood and said, I am the resurrection and the life. That very chapter is the one that says Jesus wept, but we sorrow not as those who have no hope. That is the point. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And the word there suggests to bring with him from the dead. They're not in heaven to come back with him. For they're waiting here, you'll find. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, so there will be some living on the earth at the second coming of Christ, obviously, shall not prevent, and you know, of course, that now has lost its original meaning, prevent, venia to come, to come before, shall not come before, anticipate, them which are asleep. But such is human nature, that if you come before somebody else, you'll try to prevent him, and so it's lost its original meaning. Shall not become before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And this link with the archangel links this part of the hope with the people of Israel, for the archangel is named in the Bible as Michael, and Daniel says Michael stands for the children of Israel, and when Michael stands up, there's going to be a resurrection and a time of tribulation associated with that people. But we're not considering here, at this moment, various aspects of the second coming. It's true of whatever coming we speak about, this particular phase. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. That is the thought that those who are living shall not go before those who have died. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Well, now they're living. Then we which are alive at that time and remain shall be caught up together with them, together with them, not one going before the other, in clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so, now that word so is, and in this manner, in this manner and in no other manner shall we ever be with the Lord. In no other manner, says the scripture. Because you do know there's a tradition and a teaching that when a person dies he goes to either a place called paradise or some intermediate state where he has no resurrection body, he's just a spirit in the presence of the Lord. And there have been some who said, well, if that's the case, where does the resurrection come in? If a person 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, died 
and has been for 2,000 years in the presence of the Lord, or it's 1,900 years, if you're going to find fault with me, 1,900 years in the presence of the Lord, what's the idea of raising him from the dead? Even Tyndall, the man who died because he gave us the Bible, saw that truth and emphasised it. And he was a man who had given time and thought to the word. Now, the last word is this. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, you who have passed through the experience of losing the dear one, and most of us have at some time or another, you have had folks write to you, and you've had to say to yourself, well, I know they mean well. But some of the things they say to you to comfort you are most certainly not what the Apostle gave here. Some people look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and say, that's that's poor comfort to tell me that at long last, at some time or other, we're all going to be raised from the dead. They want to be told that our dear ones are now looking over the balconies of heaven, watching us as we come to the chapel of the open book, and watch us as we go back. I said, a terrible thought to think the things they're seeing up there down here. Oh no, there's no such teaching in the scriptures. There are passages which we shall have to deal with in this series, like the one that says, to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, and so on, they will have to be brought in. But for the moment, here we have the stress that meets the resurrection is the uh, is likened to a waking out of sleep. And as far as we know, the sleep which is here involved in death is one that is timeless, no consciousness. So far as everyone is concerned, it won't be a long period between if you have ever experienced, as some of you have, the hospital treatment, you are put onto the stretcher, uh, I'll speak of my own experience and that'll be easy, the nurse said, now I'm going to give you a tranquilizer. So I was stabbed with a little tranquilizer, and I shut my eyes and thought, now I'm going to be tranquil. And I waited a long time and I opened, I thought I'm no more tranquil than I was before. And I shut them again. But I don't know what happened to me. I was just waiting. I didn't worry. Well, then I got down to the entrance to the surgery itself. And then I don't know what happened. They did it so secretly that the the uh, surgeon said to me, now something, and I said, oh, yet." Yeah. And by the time I said, yes, I'd opened my eyes and it was three hours and a half had passed and I was operated on, sewed up, patched up, back into, into bed. There was an instance that was used as an illustration similar to that like this. That in the time of the war, an aeroplane was shot down over a village in Belgium. It came down and hit the ground with a terrific bump. And the pilot heard a voice saying to him, now sit up and try and take this. And that was three years between the bump and hearing the nurse. Now if he'd have died, it would have been... 200 or 300 or 500 years between the bump and an angel saying, sit up for you've come to the resurrection morning, he wouldn't have known. We needn't worry about our dear ones. This word sleep is emphatic in the scriptures. And as I was saying, we might say, oh, that's Job says that, but our Saviour said, our Saviour said, our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Oh, I said, if he sleeps, that's good. Ah, he says, Lazarus is dead. I tell you plainly, Lazarus is dead. So the word sleep is a parable form. And the plain expression is that the believer, when he dies, 
sleeps. Now I've purposely said that. You may know a passage of scripture where an unbeliever is said to fall asleep. But I haven't found one. I do know this, positively, that when the believer dies, he falls asleep. And he doesn't fall asleep just by himself, friends. He sleeps in Christ. He's asleep in Jesus. Is there a safer place? Is there a safer place in the whole universe of God? And when the apostle comes to write the epistle to the Colossians, he puts it this way. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life, not merely our saviour, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. So your life is untouchable, friends. Your life is not put into the grave or whatever happens to you. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life, oh, you see the whole thing wrapped up in him, so that we come to the next question, this question of the first fruits. That's what we're waiting for us. It says in verse 20, But now, in Christ, is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that slept? We looked at that passage in uh, Leviticus 23, and we saw that the first fruits was the picture in its ceremonial form of the resurrection of Christ. And it was followed by another first fruits, which included his people. Well, he says here, Christ has become the first fruits of them that slept. And the Romans, the apostle writing to the Romans in the 11th chapter, he said, if the, the first fruit is holy, then is also the lump. There he's referring to, I think, the um, question of being unleavened, because he says he uses the same thought of the lump in 1 Corinthians when he speaks about it being unleavened. But here we have the emphasis upon the fact that Christ is the firstfruits. And it said so again in verse 23. But every man in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. That's Christ. And afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Let us give a little bit more attention to this extraordinary statement, shall we? That they that have fallen asleep in Christ are perished if there be no resurrection. You notice that when our Saviour is quoted in the Gospel according to John, one of the simplest statements concerning the Gospel gives her two alternatives as a consequence of believing or rejecting that truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should, now we get the alternatives, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, he said that. He didn't say he shall be judged or condemned or tormented or whatnot. He says, either at the end of the story you will perish or you will have everlasting life. And I think we must credit him for telling us the truth, not disguising from us something which has got to be developed later. Perish. Of course, there are those who have written yards on this matter and they said, well, first of all, we've come to see what is called a scientific expression, the indestructibility of matter. You know what matter is, don't you? The never mind sort of thing. Yes, that idea. Well, that's true enough. 
You put a piece of coal on the fire in your... Uh, you say, well, it's gone. Oh, as a piece of coal, yes, it's gone. But it's been combined with oxygen and it's floating about in the air as carbon dioxide and all the other things. You haven't destroyed it. But, friends, that's not a good argument. You read in the scriptures of Rachel mourning for her children because they are not. But if you went to say to the woman who'd lost her little baby in the massacre of the innocents in the time of Herod, although, although they're, they're perished, uh, the uh, material of which your baby was made, the oxygen, the hydrogen, the nitrogen, the carbon, I don't know whether you'd be allowed to get on with this, but there would be no comfort to anybody and say that's never been destroyed, that's floating about, would it? You see, the identity is gone. We're not talking about the ingredients of the human body when we say they're perished. We may agree that nothing that we ever do to a thing destroys it, it only changes its character. But so far as the individual is concerned, he doesn't exist. And that, of course, we've got to face. That's the end. It's an awful thought to think, isn't it, that a person may have lived all his life and then God picks him up, as it were, at the end of time and looks at him. He's so defective, he's put on the universal scrap heap. Horrible thought, isn't it? There are those who go further and say that God has a reservation for all unbelievers and that they shall be eternally tormented. I have a feeling that the only person who believes that is one who's been put into the loony bin. I can honour a person who's, who becomes a lunatic because he believes it. But I can't believe a person can have a fortnight's holiday and believe in eternal conscious suffering. I don't think he'd ever have time for that. I don't think he could pass down the street without buttonholing everybody and making himself an awful nuisance if he believed such a horrible thing that God would eternally torment. And of course those who advocate it, oh, they draw their imagination that after millions of years have passed, it's only just begun. What a horrible thing. Our Saviour says, perish, or everlasting life. And the Apostle's gone further, because John 3.16 is envisaging an unbeliever. The unbeliever perishes. But says the Apostle Paul, here, yeah, wait a minute, the believer will perish. Well, how's that? Well, if there's no resurrection, he will. Will you face that, friends? If there's no resurrection, you haven't got a, a life and in a tenuous form somewhere floating about in a paradise, you're perished. So, you see, we're shut up to resurrection. If we are to be raised then the door is open for eternal life and all its glories. But if there be no resurrection, we haven't even got a half a life. We've got none at all. We're perished. And that is the strength of this passage. Then they which are fallen asleep in Christ. He doesn't leave it out and say, they that are fallen asleep. Those that are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. Well, of course, you've entertained such wonderful thoughts that it would be a terrific shock to realise at long last 
that it was all in vain. Well, now we approach a section which is so interesting and so important that I'm tempted to say, well, I'm going to have a little time off, friends, and not go too far tonight. I feel there's something to be said about this passage about Adam and the end which is coming and the question about being baptised from the dead, that if I cram all that in this evening, then I shan't be able to put it in next time. And there's quite a number who I think would value the exposition. So, what do you think, friends? Do you think that we'll say, well, good enough, we're glad to have heard what we have heard, and we won't uh, make you feel you've got to repeat yourself when we meet next time? We'll come fresh to the subject and pick up where we leave off. We'll read a few of the words together that will occupy our attention. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall be made alive. And then comes the words in 1 Corinthians 15 which go to the farthest extent of any passage in Scripture. The end of the world and the end of the ages are not reached in the book of the Revelation. Not in the Revelation. They go on beyond that. And here we have, then cometh the end. And the answer to the end is the last words of verse 28, that God may be all in all. We'll have to deal with these in detail and some of the problems that arise out of it, as I say, next time. So for the moment, we'll be thankful that we can Stop all this arguing as to whether Christ was raised from the dead or whether he is not and say, well, we can't go on with this any longer. Notice how he stops himself and says, but now. And one of the ways in which the apostle has stopped himself before when he's teaching is, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes are far off are made nigh. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept.